Yeah, we could do a topic. I don't really have anything <laughs> besides World War Three, which is super fun. I don't, know. I don't know if you've been keeping up with any of the memes or like the war propaganda. No, I'm not. Fortunately, I I texted my former boss, who's Ukrainian, and asked if his family was okay. And he said he said, "Yeah, they're away from the fighting. They're looking to flee the country." And I just got back from dinner with one of my friends, whose wife is Russian, and he says she's just so filled with shame and guilt. Wow, this is just lovely. Yeah, it's a super fun time all around. Hey, dear listener, in the original edit, after the mic check, I just smash cut straight to the intro music. And frankly, it just sounded tone deaf and felt terrible. So I wanted to address the elephant in the room. I wanted to leave in that mic check for prosperity, to acknowledge what's going on in the world right now, and in some small way, catalog it for myself. That is one way in which I use this podcast. But the primary goal of the podcast is really for Zach, Raul, and I, three lifelong friends, just to get together and talk. And it is a form of catharsis. It is a little bit of escapism to let us talk about fun things, even when the world can be difficult to cope with. So with that out of the way, thank you once again for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the more fun part of the QQ cast. Let's do this! Welcome, dear listener, to QQ Cast. Today's Thursday, February 24th, 2022, and we're your host, Tony Pot and Zach Mayer. Zach, say, where's Ruly? Where is Ruly? Oh, I never get tired of saying that. Although I do get tired of him not being here. Oh, oh man. Uh, so, yeah, Zach, we're on our own, but uncharacteristically, we're not going to talk about Star Trek. Yeah, no, this is going to be weird. Like, I'm very uncomfortable. For the record, I was still very tempted to try to talk about, Zach, have me, talk me into why I should watch Star Trek Picard before a season two. But no, we're going to spare dear listener. We're going to do something different. We're going to talk about a subject near and dear uh, to our hearts, video games, specifically the piracy thereof. <laughs> so this dear listener is quest 262. Is it piracy or preservation? Question mark. So Zach, uh, this all kind of started percolating in my brain because Nintendo is shutting down the eShops for the Wii U and the 3DS. And I want to talk about uh, piracy as we've seen it in software and kind of a little high-level overview of the history and our experience uh, with that, not as professional software engineers, just as gamers growing up in the 90s, and then get into uh, some of the interesting quirks of what's going on with the Nintendo eShops and discuss some of the elements of that. Um, Does that sound fun? Oh, yeah. No, I'm down. Cool. So I wanted to start off by a little bit just, again, talking about our experiences with piracy. Uh, Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. First and foremost, disclaimer, dear listener, this is going to be two guys talking about their experiences, uh, either directly or indirectly, or their understanding of software piracy throughout, uh, not history, but, you know, the history of the internet, basically. Um, we are not endorsing piracy in any way, shape, or form. We are not telling you to go out and pirate things. We are not uh, giving opinions representative of our employers, of our friends, of our family. This is just us talking about it. And we're going to get into some of the morality questions later. And again, don't mistake this for something where we are saying it is okay to go pirate. That is not the message here. We're just discussing some of the details. Okay, disclaimer out of the way. Um, so, Zach, I, I have no experience with, obviously, uh, old-school pirating on the high seas 
Um, but I also have no experience with like music, pi- like original forms of piracy, music piracy, movie piracy. Um, I never bought bootlegged records out of the trunk of a car. I never, as far as I know, bought bootlegged CDs. I bought some bootlegged VHS tapes, which I'll get into. Um, do you have any experience uh, prior to software with any kind of, again, uh, piracy, as you want to call it that? I mean, from call it a distance, like the big scene when we were like in high school was when like Napster showed up, right? And just being able to download music, whatever you wanted at a whim without, you know, paying exorbitant royalties or fees to record labels. We, you you probably remember, I definitely do, the uh, MPAA and the RIAA, Recording Industry Artists Association and the Motion Picture Artist Association, uh, going just absolutely nuts over things like Napster in particular and getting that very much shut down. And how we, out of all of that, ended up with things like the DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Mm-hmm. Um, for me personally, I, you know, <clears throat> I had seen Napster. I understood what it was, but it wasn't for me per se. Uh, music just wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. Uh, at, at least, e- even as, e- even if it's free, it's just like, okay, cool, I guess it's nice to know that it's there. But in those early days of digital music, it didn't really matter. There was, I, I, I guess, it, it mattered insofar as that was where things came from, but like for me personally it was always a case of i know somebody who has music and shares it on our local network and if there was something that <clears throat> i wanted in particular that wasn't there usually i was just like eh whatever in the very rare case where i'm like i wish i knew where this particular song came it was always something that was way outside the mainstream very niche stuff and tracking it down on the internet was a fun sort of scavenger hunt yeah i don't I don't think so. I know Napster's a thing. I know my brother back in you know his days in college was pretty heavy into that. I don't remember ever really getting into. I mean, I'm not a huge music person. I'm getting to to music piracy in in any significant way. Um, I, I do remember like we had. This has nothing to do with piracy, but like you used to have the catalogs of like, oh, buy the first ten CDs or a buck a piece, and so. You know, my dad being a frugal guy, we would all buy a bunch of CDs at a time and cancel our subscription, buy a bunch of CDs and cancel our subscription. Um, so I never really had any need or want or desire to pirate music. And again, same thing goes with movies. Yeah. Uh, just not, not my thing. I do remember that way back when, and again, uh, for anyone listening who's you know not born in the 80s, this might blow their mind. But when Napster, when, uh, oh God, you just said the acronym. Um, whatever. When Napster was getting shut down, there was a handful of lawsuits, and they were like very token lawsuits of, oh, some old lady got sued in Alabama for, you know, $300 million. Um, and it was literally just a scare tactic that was mm-hmm. unbelievably effective because people started deleting. I remember, uh, I lived in Houston at the time, I remember people saying they were deleting their uh, their hard drives and, oh, are people going to know? And um, people were terrified that all of a sudden they would be like tracked down by the FBI or the, or whichever government organization and sued for millions of dollars and they were again they were deleting their uh, like music off their hard drives and i'm like that's not even then i, I mean i wasn't the tech person i have today even then I, I knew that's not how it worked um 
but people freaked the fuck out, and those scare tactics were very successful in shutting that shit down. Yeah, definitely. I remember some of that panic. Uh, likewise, you know, never really experienced it myself because I I remember seeing the lawsuits and thinking, wow, that's overkill. Um, the big thing was, uh, especially once we got into college, downloading illicit material, and in this case, we're not talking about like illegal, illegal material, but like copyrighted material, uh, over a university network or public Wi-Fi or, you know, some other unsecured space, um, it became apparent really, really quickly that if you were going to do this, then you either do it on your own network that you uh, <laughs> you have a little bit more control over, uh, or you use something like a VPN, which we're still kind of new at the time. I don't um, even remember hearing about that term back in those days, so... Well, VPN started to show up in my lexicon in college when we were trying to set up local networks uh, over long distances. And so we experimented with things like cantennas and trying to like boost a <laughs> boost the really shitty Wi-Fi signal that we had across a couple of buildings. Uh, and that wasn't very good but there were a couple of apps that you could use to set up you know kind of a vpn like thing um and they called it a vpn but it wasn't quite that <laughs> but the idea was you could play it's local sort of network. virtual it's sort of private it's sort of a network close enough yeah you could play uh network games over the game's lan interface uh, but you didn't have to necessarily be on the same network. You just had to be connected through this third party. Um, yeah, that got a lot more sophisticated over time. But even early days, it was just kind of like, okay, well, just you know, don't do it on a network that has a shit ton of monitoring on it. University networks were a big deal. And you saw a lot of university students get sued because they were doing dumb things <laughs> in public, basically. Uh, and then, though... Like, this same lobby, the MPAA, RAAA, uh, I don't know if video games really have an equivalent body, like lobbying body, but... Um, I think they're the, under the same as everything else, so I don't think so, but I don't know. Yeah. DMCA is the term you used earlier. That's, that's the same thing for DMCA takedowns for ROMs and other things, so I don't I don't know they have a different body legislatively. Well, that's that's the law, but, like, the lobbying institutes or, or yeah, I don't the know. groups are the MPAA for the Motion Picture Artists Association and the RIAA for the recording industry. Um, anyway, those guys went ham on university campuses because they were able to get a lot of that information in cooperation with the universities themselves. Uh, so once the DMCA... Uh, went off, you know, public institutions, anything receiving public funds started to be real cooperative about tracking, <laughs> uh, you know, individual user usage of their publicly funded resources, which in hindsight makes a certain amount of, uh, of sense. Uh, uh, in, yeah. At the time, it felt like they're just a bunch of narcs. <laughs> uh, incorrect. Which, by the by the way, dear listener, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, like uh, all those torrent programs are basically opening a a shitload of network connections to to different peers at the same time. Um, they're unbelievably easy to spot on a network. It's it's like it'd be like shooting yeah. up flares out of your house. Like, huh? 
I wonder which one of those is signaling something. No, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, at least early days. And we're talking about BitTorrent at this point, right? BitTorrent showed up after Napster shut down uh, this whole distributed uh, system. What would you call that? Like a, It's peer-to-peer downloading. But you're distributing the load uh, instead of having one canonical source file that you are copying over a network you are getting bits and pieces of it from several different people hundreds at a time potentially and that's got advantages and disadvantages but mostly it's a very resilient network for keeping source files alive there's not one source you can shut down and it goes away everybody's got a copy and sharing it and now you have to go after thousands of people distributed decentralized that's the whole point yeah. It also makes for great source control. Right. So, um, yeah, that started to be a thing. And you're right. Like, BitTorrent traffic is, it, it has a, it, it'd be polite to call it a signature in a network graph. Um, it is oh, it's... noisy as fuck. Yes. <laughs> it's very easy to spot. So, yeah, universities didn't have a problem with saying, hey, yeah, we are reasonably you know well and they'll eat bandwidth like crazy the whole point is to literally pull as much as you can from every pipe that you have yeah no they had every incentive to say yeah you guys shouldn't be torrenting stuff and pirating stuff because that was there are legitimate uses for BitTorrent, i'm sure oh there are game 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 patching software in this direction (laughs) major patches and downloads are affected by that technology but uh especially early days it was very much for Yarmy Hardy's pirating stuff. Um, and yeah, bandwidth was limited, especially in university scenarios where you've got like a T1 line that everybody's partying on. Um, so yeah, no, the universities had every incentive to shut that down, and now they had a really convenient excuse to not necessarily be the bad guy. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that happened. Yeah. Um, oh. Okay, so that was that was music. Again, I don't have any experience with movies. That was certainly not any different. Uh, so the only other thing that I, well, I guess I guess sort of movies here. The only thing I, I could have to talk about before we get into software piracy is, um, look, I admit it. In the '90s, you could not get anime. Uh, the, you know, it's hard to remember back at an age before before the internet, before you know international shipping, before everything just being ubiquitous. Who knew what anime was out there? So I had some friends that managed to get their hands on, I don't know how they did it, I don't know how they got here, but bootlegged copies where it's copies of copies of copies of, you know, horribly degraded (laughs) VHS tapes of anime. Um, And that was the only way I I or my friends could get our hands on anything that came out of Japan in that form. So, I, I, I mean, I was so young, I wouldn't have even known at the time what we were doing that you would have called it, you know, bootlegging or is that piracy or... This was my first exposure to such things because I just wanted to see what was going to happen with DBZ, or I wanted to watch Trigun, or you know whatever I could get my hands on. Um, did you did you have any VHS experiences? No, nothing like that. Um, it was very much a case of like I did not know anime existed before the internet showed me, uh, and at that point it was kind of a novelty, and it didn't really take off until at least in my circle of of people that i i hung out with it didn't really resonate with anybody until we were like end of high school starting college and then yeah the access to it was a problem and there were a few places where you could go and get it and it was unclear if 
those particular things were ever really going to see any kind of like DMCA enforcement. Um, some people were saying, yeah, no, the uh, the American studios that are helping to produce this stuff and especially dubbing it, because you'd see, you know, shows oh, that were course, dubbed on course. like uh, Cartoon Network and a couple of other places. Well, so if they would step up and defend those particular <laughs> IPs. Yeah, and that, uh, that's the thing. When I was doing, again, I, I was super young. I didn't understand the stuff. But when I was getting these VHS tapes, this was pre, when, when Cartoon Network created Toonami, and they were the first ones to put on, you know, syndicated cable television, actual episodes of anime. There was nothing like that before. That was by far the largest reach and the largest exposure of anything of any sort. And that's how you got into it. Most people, I think, uh, from our generation got into it. I had only seen some of these VHS tapes before that. So you talk about limited exposure. You talk about there was no such thing as an anime on television. Um, and there was no internet with which to download it. This was this was pre-Cartoon Network. Because uh, after stuff like that, my friends and I all got into anime. We were watching at their high school. We went to watching parties. Those companies you're referring to, I think it was like a, one of them was like ADV or something. They would actually do anime nights at our local theater to try to advertise the things that they were dubbing. And we would go watch them. So this was prior to even that. So it was just, again, this is a, an interesting segue into the the morality part in a minute. But, like, we could not, aside from, like, get a plane ticket, get a dictionary, <laughs> to translate Japanese, and pray I could, I could fly to Japan and find this stuff. There was no no conceivable way for, for us to even know it existed over here. Right. And that's true of almost, almost, uh... Well, I guess there were there were two motivators, right? It was the accessibility of the content. Could you even find it in the first place by any other means? Um, but there was also the like actual cost of that content. Well, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. In, in my defense, as you know, again, this little like this might have not even been a teenager yet. Like there, it wasn't even like obviously I didn't have the money to buy it. Had I had the option, but the stuff I'm talking about, I, I couldn't have even purchased if I wanted to. Right. No, for sure. Um, and I think that was true of a lot of things. It was less true in music, although there were definitely arguments for it. Like, album prices had been increasing for a long time before things like Napster showed up. Um, uh, movie ticket prices had started to really creep up into the range where it was not quite something you could do every week. Uh, <laughs> you know, go to a theater or, mm -hmm. you know, buy a copy of whatever it was that you were interested in. And so you saw the rise of things like Blockbuster, rentals. Yep. Um, there, There's definitely, I, I think cost f plays into access because if you can't afford it, then even if there are options for attaining it, it's not really accessible to well, you. Yeah, and that's, that's but, the thing I, I wanted to segue in and talk about is... um. At this point, it's it's it, it's fine. We can just move straight to there for a second. Um, you know, is is piracy just, just conceptually, just conceptually, is piracy effectively part of laissez-faire? Is it effectively part of the invisible hand? If something is either inaccessible or prohibitively expensive, are people going to turn to piracy in order to get it? I think that the objective answer, regardless of morality, regardless of our opinions, regardless of legality, is yes. I think it is. It definitely is, and you see that in things that are not digital assets as well right uh, there are some services which are either uh difficult to obtain or 
cost prohibitive to obtain and the response <laughs> the rational response if it's something that somebody really wants but can't otherwise access is they will go to a gray or a black market space to get it and that has different effects depending on what it is that we're talking about specifically but bringing it back to digital goods what that means is you develop new technologies and ways to share stuff um i think BitTorrent is a really cool piece of technology that had nefarious motivations behind it and it's ultimately i think proved to be a really good thing overall there are plenty of places where you know you, you made the uh, observation like game patches digital distribution of video games is so ubiquitous now downloading these hundred gigabyte files uh is a lot faster and easier to maintain yeah. it, than and a well, central repository yeah and while not necessarily doing peer-to-peer -peer from end users you are pulling from multiple cdns simultaneously so right. you're not just taking out of one s3 bucket or s2 whatever it is bucket on, on amazon right 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 so you know that's really cool stuff and you could point you could i i could make the argument you could point at BitTorrent and say this is where web 2 started uh this is where cloud computing got its first foothold um it was very very successful i mean partly for the legitimate reasons but largely for the illegitimate ones yep okay so um we'll, we'll i'm sure we'll come back and talk about the the laissez-faire aspect in a moment so just kind of moving us before we last thing dear listener before we get into the nintendo stuff is uh software piracy obviously zach um Again, we're, we're going to do what we shouldn't do on mic and confess that, yes, we may have pirated some things over the years. Again, uh, when I was in high school, I, even college, I was poor. It was a different world back then. You know, Steam sales weren't happening, and I wasn't paying $5 for video games. So, yes, in high school, we uh, we did some pirating here and there. But, 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 um, I want to point out that we also really enjoyed uh, all my friends and i we would buy a, a licensed copy of base half-life so that we could play free half-life mods we would when playing uh i think it was blizzard games you would pass around the disc because um it was designed for land parties if you had the disc in your drive you could boot the game so we'd all take turns booting the game and play together on mm -hmm. a lan so again going back to that comment of like if something's inaccessible or unplayable let's pirate it versus if we had options if we had ways to play together or that we're legal, or the low barrier entry, we would do them. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you I never pirated any any video game. Uh, that that would not be a true statement. But uh, yeah, again, as as things were made or developed so that we could play together, or free multiplayer like Mario Kart on on Game Boy Advance or on DS, you would just download over the air the build of the game so one cartridge could play multiplayer with multiple people. When there were options, we would use that, and when there weren't. And things were, again, especially for us poor college kids, prohibitively expensive. Sometimes we had to turn to more nefarious uh, ways of getting engagement. Well, the um, the CD-ROM, like, burners, imagers, and uh, emulators were super impressive to me. Like, virtualization for those devices was really, really cool in the early days when there wasn't a whole lot of that going on basically anywhere else. Um, for me, it was often a case of, I would really like X, 
cannot afford X and food at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, given the opportunity, sure, yeah, no, go pirate it. But um, yeah, it was always a case of if I wasn't acquiring it through a less than official channel, it was never going to be in my library to begin with. Um, what's changed over the years is uh, now I can afford stuff, and largely digital distribution has caught up with demand in well, but, but most say it's, cases. I don't think so. it's just... It is obviously you and I can absolutely afford stuff, right? We're, we're uh -huh. professional software engineers in the United States uh, in the you know early 2000s here. We, we can afford stuff. I, I don't think that's the only thing, though. I, I, I think it's kind of unquestionable that things have become not only more available, but more... I don't want to use the word reasonably placed, but subscription models. Like, people... There is still music piracy. There will always be music piracy, but... Most people just pay for fucking Spotify. Uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, all these video services. We're not pirating DVDs and mailing them to each other because for four bucks, I can just rent the movie that I want to watch. We're not pirating cable because then I have to self-time things. I can just get it on. I can just get, again, a subscription service and get access to basically all the media on the fucking planet in real time. Game Pass is now a game subscription service. Steam sales come out all the time. You and I, I mean, everyone has hundreds of games in their Steam catalog that I've played. So I don't think it's just you and I now make money. That's an element of it. It's why I buy a lot of Nintendo games. But I also think that um, the the models have changed and the lower barrier to entry, especially the removal of that that physical good trans uh, production and transportation, mm. has changed the game entirely. And I think it's a, a golden era for people to get all, again, all the content that the world has to offer for dollars a month as opposed to what used to cost 20 bucks for a single cd 60 minutes of music at most right yeah no you're definitely it's definitely a combination of those um you know having the legitimate channels be actually worth the time and money and also having the money to spend um they play yes. against each other because if you're if your legitimate service is you know as cheap as it can possibly be, then you're removing a lot of barriers, price barriers to people who would otherwise not get to experience whatever content you're offering. Um, but there's still that that lingering little bit, even at the lowest cost, like next to free, there's still somebody who's going to be like, I cannot do it. Of course. And so you still have that black-gray market. Yeah. And, and that's where one of the arguments... Um you know, not for piracy, but one of the arguments against trying to spend too much time and effort in cutting it down is that the people you're preventing from getting your your product at that point were never going to give you money anyway, right? You want to you yeah. want to do uh, at least some effort to prevent mass piracy of whatever your product is. It, you absolutely have to do something. Nothing is not acceptable, but there is significant diminishing returns on the value of that effort because again. Someone who's going to go through, who either truly can't afford anything or is willing to go through, you know, leaps and bounds and hoops to, to, to pirate whatever the media is, they're never going to pay you money anyway. You were never going to make money off them. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the basic, <laughs> the, the laissez-faire calculation would be it should be about as much work for somebody to acquire your media illicitly as it would be worth to spend working to pay you yes right so if yeah. if you make it take 30 minutes or an hour then as long as somebody's time 
you know 30 minutes or an hour of time is worth about what your media is then yeah yeah fuck it I, it's just it's just not yeah i mean during, not gonna be a there's no roi there yeah d- during the big dvd boom in like the early 2000s i remember that you could go on ebay and get um again talking about anime you couldn't find in the united states i remember you could go on ebay and you could find you know box sets of dvds for anime that were obviously pirated and they were like a tenth of the price well in this day and age you could just pay for fucking Crunchyroll for less money and get all the anime in the world, right? So yeah, oh, yeah. It's, a, it's a turning point, an inflection point. I think I'm a Crunchyroll subscriber. I think I haven't used Crunchyroll in like four months, so I've completely forgotten that I'm paying. Glad I could remind you. That's sweet, uh, sweet recurring revenue. Honestly, like I don't mind a service like that. Has Crunchyroll's been around for a long time at this point, and the subscription model that they have is. Not exactly new, but the service that they're offering with it very much is. Like, their mobile app is fantastic, but um, it's a service worth supporting, in my opinion. I don't mind just feeding them money. It's <laughs> it's not even a lot of money. It's like 10 bucks or something. Okay, so let's let's finally, finally get into what's going on with Nintendo. So, uh, Nintendo, most places always sunset their online stores at a certain point. So, Nintendo just announced they're sunsetting the Wii U uh, eShop and the 3DS eShop. They announced those simultaneously. And basically, you have, I believe, four more months to uh, add virtual funds. At, at that point, they're going to stop accepting additional money into the ecosystem. And then March of next year, so about a year from now, uh, they're finally going to turn off the stores. So if you haven't spent the money you put into the ecosystem by then, you have to turn them off. And, you know, this is to some extent expected. I mean, people do sunset stores. Uh, Sony tried to do this a year ago, I think, with the Vita, and there was so much backlash they... They uh, reversed course on that one and said, okay, we'll keep the storefront up. Um, now, you have to think, from these corporations' point of view, you have to be making so little money off these stores that it's no longer worth the maintenance, and you do have to kind of wonder, man, what is that? <laughs> Where, you know, what is that inflection point? But um, the, the interesting thing about Nintendo shutting down these, these eShops is that uh, because they're not computer software, they can't just be backed up on things like GOG or taken offline, there is a ridiculous amount of content that will be truly gone forever. So part of that isn't just, hey, there's a lot of old uh, virtual console games that are literally no longer available on any other medium, uh, legally anyway. So like old you know, NES games, SNES games, N64 games, there's no legal way to purchase them anymore. But that's not even really the bigger part of the issue. The bigger part of the issue is the games that are going to completely disappear. Now, one quick thing that's a little bit interesting is they have said, hey, Patches will still be available for games. You can go online and get a patch, but that downloadable content and downloadable game or purchased virtual games will not. So, Zach, obviously, you and I can immediately intuit it's licensing and auth. If they can put a patch up on an unencrypted CDN with no uh, security requirements, then yes, they're paying for again an S2 bucket, and who cares? They they can just host that forever for stability. But they obviously want to turn off again licensing software and authentication and everything else to get rid of all the purchases and a lot of games uh arguably patches and other content fall under uh that that dlc you won't be able to get so there's going to be a lot of stuff lost um and that's kind of the more interesting part of this so i can get into some of the examples of that but what's what's your take on storefronts shutting down or games literally literally going into the ether being completely unavailable um I mean, if it, it's remarkable, it's remarkable to me that that can be true. Like something like, 
a Nintendo game could just straight up disappear from the internet entirely because ROMs have been a thing for a good long time, not just for Nintendo, but for every game console at least one generation back. Um, it starts to make a little bit less sense with emulators being the way they are uh, and hardware being at the capability that it is. Yeah, you might not be able to actually run them, but they're still out there, mostly. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the ROMs themselves uh, are easy to dump, right? Read-only memory, you get a physical cartridge, you read right. you read that binary. Um, there were a bunch of old games on, oh, I forget what they were called, but Sega and Nintendo, like Sega had like the Sega Channel, and I forget what Nintendo called theirs, but there was like the first attempt to kind of downloadable content. And some of those games have been preserved. People were able to like find you know, hardware and cartridges that had just enough of it living in memory to get it back. But there's a lot of lost content from the night, not a lot, but some lost content from the nineties where that, that Mm -hmm. stuff is just gone. Obviously today there's gotta be a way to back up. Someone out there is pirating and backing up air quotes, pirating and backing up these games, but I'm not actually hundred percent certain. Um, and getting your, getting access to them might be hard. I, if anything required an online service, that shit is literally gone unless sure. someone reverse engineers the servers. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's that's true of a lot of, like, always online games and things. Like, yeah, you can definitely get the game files, but it's not going to be worth anything without the servers yeah. behind them. It, it's literally a body with no brain. Like, yeah. it's not going to work. So that, uh, with the, the eShops shutting down and the, um, the virtual console content going away on the official channel the vibe that i get is very disney like it feels like a disney vault kind of situation right that definitely feels that way about yes the the re-released games like um paper mario and i I forget some other examples of like yes those are going back into the disney vault that someday you know a company's either going to make a collection like you know konami's recently made the castlevania collection or capcom's made the Mega Man collection they're going to parade those back out and make you pay um yes that those old games that are virtual console re-releases that feels like disney going back into the vault great analogy yeah and i mean you remember like that was a whole big thing with the vhs era and even the dvd era yeah for disney movies was it's going into the vault and we're not going to be making these or you know printing runs of these dvds and that made that that was a thing now disney's doing it with their uh their streaming service disney plus like things are coming in and out of rotation wait really but that's a um, thing I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. They don't have their whole library on Disney+. Plus. The vault is still a living thing. But I did um, not even know that. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. It's super fun. Star Wars might go into the vault someday. But, well, the uh... original cut sure as fuck has. <laughs> that, that's, another, that's another great example of, again, the, the question of piracy. You cannot, I, I, and maybe that's changed now, but for, for years, if not decades, you could not get the original cuts of the original Star Wars movies. Right. So again, yeah. like... What do you what do you do there? What do you say to that? Again, by definition it's piracy. Don't misunderstand me, but like you can't get this thing. You literally mm-hmm. cannot pay money for it. Well, stuff like movies especially, and music to a lesser extent and games sort of kind of, but not really, followed the same model as book printing. So, yeah, you'd have your first edition run and then maybe a second edition run that made some corrections or had author's notes or whatever. Oh, yeah, even uh, even console games have, you know, version 1.1 ROMs kind of thing. Yeah, and as you go through that life cycle, you know, you stop printing first editions after a certain point and you move on. 
and then getting a new first edition becomes impossible. It's all resale, right? And the so, same but... was true for movies and bless his bones. What? Uh, what's his name? Lucas really, really did not want first edition Star Wars to persist. Uh, he was really into yeah, the very WTF edition. in my opinion. But, I, I understand um, him wanting to destroy all copies of the holiday special, but like to hate the original cuts of his movies feels like a real dick move. Yeah, and you could say, oh well, he's he's an artist. Have you ever spent you know decades building something? You know, that pouring your blood, sweat, tears, all of your creative energy into uh, just to end up hating it because that's just what artists do. But uh, it's also but I very, liked what it. the fuck. But I'm the consumer and I fucking liked it. Shut yeah. up and take my money. Okay, so uh, you, you said a moment ago, you know, you have to recirculate things, get them secondhand or hand around. That's another thing that's really interesting about Nintendo uh, and, the, and the 3DS specifically is I, I think this may have changed over time, but it, it certainly was uh the original wasn't like this they they tied your licensing to the hardware not an account Mm -hmm. so nintendo was very adverse to online accounts and online subscriptions and they're finally (laughs) finally learning and that's a good thing but um so when you downloaded or you purchased something on your your 3ds it was tied to the hardware so at one point uh one of the few things my dog has ever chewed and destroyed was a 3ds and fortunately, he didn't destroy it just enough so that we could buy another 3DS and transfer all the software onto it. But had he chewed it, that software is just gone. You you can't, there's no way to prove like, oh, my my name is Tom. I have like Tom1234, the email address. I can download my software again. It was tied only to the hardware. So aside from that kind of being fucked up, it, it also completely limits, if not to completely removes, the ability to loan something to someone imagine if you couldn't loan me a single dvd you had to be like hold on hold on here's my whole binder of dvds and here's my fucking television it's the only way to watch uh office space or lord of the rings or whatever so it's even more limiting you can't just resell like the right to resell you don't you can't just resell a piece of the software because it's tied to the fucking hardware well that was true of blu-ray too like just in general Blu-ray as a standard was only going to work on official Blu-ray players. That was what made it so hard to emulate. But um, ultimately, even that broke down. Like, you, what was the... Um, do you remember when there was an encryption key that uh, Sony, I think it was the PlayStation 3, got leaked and you started seeing the illegal numbers and characters posted on, like, lampposts? Uh, <laughs> it was the thing that unlocked the ps3 bluetooth player so that you could play other media on it yes um so yeah no that was super cool yeah a huge shout out by the way there's a um a youtuber named um modern vintage gamer mvg and he does some awesome videos about how piracy measures for different game consoles were defeated over time so again that's not a, a morality statement he's just kind of documenting it historically of like oh this is how this key got cracked or this is how they sideloaded or booted in other software uh really fascinating stuff highly recommend those videos yep 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 but yeah no uh hardware restrictions were across the board in a bunch of different devices um and it was i think still based around that model of hey people want to share this stuff but how do you how, how do you monetize sharing digital content that has 
physical aspect, access points in a lot of ways. Game cartridges, CDs, DVDs. Um, and you can't, like, without really invasive measures, do that. And I think that was a big driver for uh, digital distribution in particular. Because if you can sell it to somebody and tie it to a particular account, if you can fingerprint it somehow, then it becomes real difficult to straight up share. We are we are not going to talk about non-fungible tokens. We are not doing the NFT <laughs> conversation on this fucking no. podcast. No, 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 no. Uh, but the uh, things like Steam games, Steam didn't get a family mode for years. You could buy a Steam game, you could download a Steam game, but if you tried to copy the files straight out of your Steam directory and paste them into somebody else's, they just straight up wouldn't work. Because that account that they were using hadn't purchased that game, and Steam would not let you play it. So yep. now you have a way to control the sharing aspect. And fortunately, you've built, uh, you, you've seen a lot of services build into, uh, you know, sharing spaces like I mentioned, Steam Family Mode uh, or Family Accounts. Oh yeah, they, yeah, but, and you can transfer the game license to other people. Like it's oh yep. man. Steam has all the features as a storefront there. I yeah. was actually just talking about this with someone. Can you name a single storefront feature that Steam does not have? No, they're they're at the forefront of everything. At least they have the features. Uh, they may or may not be super intuitive or accessible, but they they are there. Yeah, I'm not claiming they're perfect, but uh, I have God a lot of damn, problems with Steam's UX in general. But <laughs> have not been great at that. Although the refresh has, has been nice. They're spending a lot of time making it look pretty. Anyway, yeah, and they're a good example. Not every digital distribution channel does that, um, and some of them make it explicit that they will not do that, uh, especially things like the rise of the streaming TV channels, right? CBS and uh, Peacock and others. They're very much Paramount in, Plus. Yeah, they're very much in the you can maybe cast it to one device, but we need to know what that device is ahead of time. And you can only really link to one or two at a time. Uh, unless you pay us more in a subscription fee to be able to connect to multiple devices. And that's kind of how they're tackling uh limited broadcast restrictions. So, someday Netflix is gonna get desperate and do that, but not today. The trouble with it is that our, our our legal code hasn't really kept up. Like DMCA even now is real dated. You don't see takedown notices quite as often unless it's music in the background of videos on YouTube. Um, and the restrictions around broadcasting for media like uh, movies and uh, uh, music, even television shows, like they're really restrictive. And so the question has been, and has not been resolved yet, how does Chromecast fit in as a broadcast mechanism? How does sharing a piece of media over a wireless connection, which is the definition of the broad of broadcasting in the statutes, play when you're just talking to your TV? How big can that TV be and how visible can it be to others? Well, I have uh, certainly not thought about it in that context. It's super deep and super weird. And honestly, it's mostly just a headache. But the problem with the 
codes and statutes and, and policies around that stuff is that they don't get updated very often. And because they don't get updated very often, they tend to only get additive updates, not revisional updates. Mm. So now you have a ton of you know, laws, regulations, codes, and policies that is just growing and growing and growing. And to the point where you could look at it and probably make a case against any use of media if you really, really wanted to. Now, whether it would hold up in any kind of legal setting is dubious and down to this down to the details but just having that umbrella bullshit hanging over you is not a good thing in general like that's stifling just to have all of that cruft yeah i do not know okay let's let's get to the uh the the question as as it was stated uh when is it piracy versus uh preservation Mm. So, I don't know, man. What what is your take? Like, uh, I, I don't have a ton of examples to offer you, but like, if someone, if, if there are things that are coming off the Nintendo eShop, and there is literally no way for you to get them. Again, this isn't even the I could get the plane ticket, I could mm-hmm. go to Japan, I could learn Japanese. I I think all of those things are arguably you can't, you know, in any reasonable sense get them. But this is a more literal. This is a more literal. Mm-hmm. It will not exist if not pirated. Right. Where's where's the morality in that? I it's I mean I think there's an answer but like not the letter of the law. <laughs> well, there's a really nice exception in things like DMCA for backups. If you have purchased the media or software or whatever and you acquire a copy of it through whatever nefarious means you choose, as long as you've purchased it, you've at least purchased a license, and it doesn't necessarily matter which specific channel you get that license satisfied through. So, you know, buy the DVD, download a digital copy of it from wherever your favorite pirate site of choice or BitTorrent. You know, if somebody comes knocking and says, hey, you pirated this movie, you can say, no, I bought this movie, and I backed it up. That should apply... Wait. To pretty much anything. Yeah, which uh, my understanding, I, when I've ever done, whenever I've done little bits of research into this, you get very conflicting, probably because, again, like you said, things are antiquated. You get very conflicting answers as to whether or not, hey, if I own a game, can I download the ROM? No, technically you can only back up your ROM, even though bit by bit it's an identical ROM. And, like, there's very conflicting <clears throat> I, I can never find a straight answer in terms of legality because it sounds so, like yeah. the lawyers have not, because it's tech, because it's complicated, the lawyers have not made this as black and white as perhaps it should be. Well, that's the thing. And you, and you said it. It's bit by bit the same thing. So whether you backed it up physically or you downloaded it from someplace, who can tell you that you didn't back it up? Um, so A practic- lie detector test? <laughs> <laughs> practically. Sodium pentothal? Practically, it doesn't make a difference. Uh, but legally, if what you say on the stand does, yeah, yeah, I would never say lie to a judge, <laughs> but you don't have to admit to that. <laughs> Omissions Make, are a beautiful thing. The thing is, somebody if if you're being accused of something, somebody else has to prove that, and if they can't prove that, it's as beyond good a reasonable at, doubt. Yeah, well, by whatever standard, reasonable doubt is one of them, but there are other standards for proof. What, what are you, married to a lawyer? I might be. Oh, right. Um, the, the point is, 
if they have to prove it and can't, then that's as good as you having not done the thing. So <laughs> hashtag not legal advice, dear listener. Yeah. Uh, morally, though, like I see exactly zero problem with it. Like if you're if you have bought the media and you acquire it from uh, a pirate source. But what what if what if you then that, again that, you have not bought it? What if you have not bought it, but it is just literally no longer capable of being purchased? It gets a lot grayer, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, well, and this isn't like again, like the Mona Lisa, where there's a single copy. This is sure. not. There's no physical limitation here. Sure. I mean, on the one hand, if it's something that is no longer being produced, and it is a case of the uh, copyright holder is no longer capable of producing the content. In some cases, the uh, you know the studios or the bands or the uh, producers of these pieces of media just literally they dissolve they go away companies fold all the time and while the ip ownership like the copyright might revert to some holding company or uh parent company or whatever those are not producer entities like they may hold the right to the the copyright or the intellectual property but they have no means to actually distribute or produce it in those cases, I see exactly nothing wrong with the internet as an archive. So um, yeah, so okay, I want to I want to get into one one more thing here uh, before I, I throw in the towel on this topic. We get to news. Um, so okay, I agree with you in that. Uh, speaking strictly philosophically, I don't believe in like the victimless crime. If there is no victim, then why is it a crime? I I think that's an oversimplification, but it's something that I I get behind, right? So if you cannot pay for this good but it also again it's not like i'm stealing the mona lisa it's not like well i couldn't pay for it because it wasn't for sale though that's it's irrelevant in a digital good in this case Mm -hmm. then that should qualify as a victimless crime and so theoretically by my little paper definition here then that would make piracy okay however let's put in a very real counterpoint i mentioned on the on the e-shops for the 3ds and the wii uh wii u that there's a bunch of games that were re-released, old classic titles, and now when they go away, you will once again be in a situation where you cannot purchase these old games. There's no legal means today with which you can purchase them. Okay, yep. well, what about when they come back for sale? They, they, you know, they come back. So Earthbound was an example, right? Earthbound is coming to the Switch now as part of the eShop, or not eShop, mm-hmm. the uh, Nintendo Plus subscription, whatever. And that was something that was only, the only legal way to purchase it uh, in past years would have been on the the Wii U or the 3DS. So what happens when something goes away, and my argument was, well, then it's fine to pirate it. Well, then when it returns to being on sale in the future, does that mean that everyone who pirated it is now morally obligated to delete their copy? There's this weird, like, temporal time matters gray area situation here what's what's your take on that well see that's the thing like nintendo in particular is a producer of this content if they pull it from the shelves it's very much like (laughs) i i i really like comparing it to the disney vault because disney is a producer of content as well uh when they pull it we don't know their intention like for sure for sure we can't say that oh they're pulling it so that they can go remaster it and re-release it uh or go you know fix it up and create artificial demand and then start another run of printing uh but they are still producers 
they haven't gone away. And I would say that in that case, you're if you're downloading it, you know, even if it's not available then, the producer still exists, and that is potential harm to the producer. Now, the use of harm is problematic uh, for all the reasons that we talked about in, pri in piracy in general. The trend is not that people are pulling sales away from these producers. Like, if you're pirating this stuff, most of the time it's because you wouldn't be a customer in the first place, so harm yeah. with an asterisk. This water is just getting so muddy with right. all the ifs, thans, ors, buts. Yeah, harm with an asterisk. Uh, you could, I think, make the case and say, mm, okay, it's been vaulted, and it will probably be made available later, so maybe don't get it or it maybe maybe it's it's not a good thing to do. Honestly, my solution to that personally, like personally morally is that if it's a piece of content that is not available through an official channel, regardless of whether it's uh been vaulted, vaulted or, or just dis the the producers behind it have disbanded entirely, um if it's something that is uh available through a pirate channel Sure, go for it. But when it becomes available again, buy it. <laughs> and then call what you had a backup. Fair enough. So I guess the, the last thing to mention, and then we'll get out of here and go to news, is um, there is such a thing as abandonware. That is a literal thing. And mm -hmm. I don't know what the statute is on that, but software can be truly abandoned. Either the rights have nowhere to revert to, or something was either unused or unpublished or unupdated for so long. I don't, I don't actually know the statute of abandonware, but it is a thing. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, again, we like to we like to say and think that the internet is forever, and anything that ends up on the internet stays there. It tends to. The internet's pretty sticky like that. Um, with abandonware in particular, the value of it may be uh, questionable in some cases, but in others it's not. Um, <laughs> and there are... I, I can think of a couple of specific cases of drivers, like actual software drivers that i've needed to get because oh god they disappear you're like what the fuck well yeah the official channel is gone it's been abandoned and oh man now i need this driver from some like somebody's personal dropbox link or whatever it happens to be um i i i feel like abandonware and um they they're i can tell you what i think the statute should be you know if there is nobody to uh, point to as either a copyright or IP holder or whoever it is simply just straight up releases the copyright or IP claim. Um, the general license for that thing should revert back to Creative Commons. It should be effectively public domain at that point. That's not how it actually is, but I feel like it should be. And practically, it probably could be treated that way because if there's nobody to like enforce a copyright claim v or victimless issue crime, a right? DMCA, then there, yeah, there is no victim for whatever crime might be committed. Yep, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it seems reasonable, but boy, anything with law is well, is always more complicated than it probably should be. It's uh, it's a feature of our general approach to creating legal codes right we take challenge and precedent 
and kind of roll those into our collective understanding of the way things work. If there's nobody to challenge, or there's nobody claiming damage, then the laws on the books don't tend to change. And it's how you end up with, you can't ride a horse backwards drunk on Sundays in whatever town (laughs) ever passed that law, still being in the legal code, even though it never gets enforced and nobody practically does it. Uh, we have, we have cruft like that in our, in our digital laws too. And because there's not anybody to really stand up and say, oh, hey, I'm being hurt by this. It doesn't get challenged. And if it doesn't get challenged, it doesn't get changed. New precedent just never appears. I have nothing to add, sir. Anything else you want to mention before we, uh, before we move on to a, we've been talking about this for a while, probably a very short round of news. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general piracy is overblown, but there's definitely a moral way to approach it. Um, I think that's going to be up to your particular situation and uh, your particular relationship with whatever media it is that you're you're looking at. But largely, um, if you can be a customer, be a customer. If you yeah. can't be a customer, just be conscious of what you're doing. Yeah, fair enough. I. I can't say I disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, in summary, I I do think that, that, again, just objectively speaking, piracy is an element of the invisible hand, that it is something that, again, when something is uh, unavailable or prohibitively expensive, it's going to happen. And beyond that, like we talked about with the, um, the victimless crime, I'm also in that. I agree with you. Well, agree is probably the wrong word. I sympathize with what you're saying about, you know, if you... If you can't afford it, whatever. Again, we talked about just from a pure profit loss standpoint, there you have to accept that there are certain people who are just never going to be your customers at that point. How much time and effort are you going to invest into fighting them versus fighting the people who would potentially be your customers? I don't know. It, mm. it's, there's a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of ins and outs. Um, the but, only thing yeah. that we didn't really talk about, and it would be a big old can of worms, we talked uh, or mentioned things like Napster. We didn't mention things like the pirate bay there is a real big difference i think between the consumers of pirated material and the distributors of pirated material oh that's interesting yeah and there is a whole can of worms that we could go into but i think we've probably i think so said enough yeah (laughs) like our, our our focus in this conversation is like i said largely been on consuming pirated media yes and that's fine to just cut it off there good enough all right well zach before we get to the news we have to do our sponsor do you, do you have a sponsor this evening zach uh this episode brought to you by the pirate bay oh dear god no <laughs> after these messages we'll be right back i was i was gonna say uh bo burnham just because i wanted to sing welcome to the internet take a look around Everything that brain of yours can think of can be found. We have mountains of content, some better, some worse. If none of it's of interest, well, then you'd be the first. Okay, that's enough. We, I think we just, did we pirate his music? Was that intellectual property? No, was that fair no, use? No. What was that? That, that? that feels like fair use to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Do you want to do uh, one or two quick news headlines and we'll get out of here? Uh, yeah. Do you have one in your pocket? Oh, my God. It's like we have a Slack channel that I've been dumping these things in. Go f*** yourself, San Diego. Um, yeah. So speaking 
of uh, of Steam. Bethesda is going to sunset their custom launcher and storefront, and they are just moving to Steam entirely. So uh, that's interesting. I bet they negotiated a great price with with Valve, with like, hey, instead of taking what, what is Valve's standard cut? Is it twenty percent these days? I thought it was thirty, but I, I think could it be used wrong. to be, and I think it got cut not long ago. But yeah, I, I bet you Bethesda went and negotiated down, hey, it's only going to be 10% or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also makes me very interested, I, I doubt this was related to Steam Deck, but it makes me wonder if uh, now all Bethesda products, they're going to go out of their way to ensure that they're Steam Deck compatible and that that'll be a sales point for uh, Valve and hopefully increase the sales for Bethesda. So that that remains to be seen, but I wonder if the timing is purely coincidental or if they will very specifically be targeting Steam Deck. Yeah, I I couldn't tell you. I mean, when I think of Bethesda, I don't think of uh, digital storefront. Same with things like Ubisoft, which rolled into EA's digital storefront. Um, not too, too long ago, but I think it's probably been like six months. Or... Yeah, well, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, making an online storefront and handling licenses and features and bundle discounts and sharing and request oh my god it's way fucking harder than it sounds (laughs) well yeah exactly like that's an investment and they don't produce enough they're not they're i still think of bethesda as a studio more than a producer oh yeah of course um and i don't think that they have enough content to justify a storefront like that so you know you could you could look at um and i think that's true of things like Ubisoft as well that tried to dip their toes into that their you know having their own distribution channel uh, and ultimately ended up rolling into EAs EA as a publisher has way more licenses than they need to justify having their own digital store uh, Steam definitely does I mean now <laughs> at least they had the benefit of being first uh, with all that, but bless their hearts, they didn't. Um, well, I mean, they, they, yeah, they were out front, and I think that they actually invested the time to make a storefront. Obviously, they originally dogfooded it, did their own products, but they brought other people on. Most other companies, including the one that I work for, that's not the purpose of their platform. It's not to bring third parties on. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a huge difference between a, a private publisher storefront and a broader digital storefront. Yeah. World of difference. But uh, still significant amount of effort to create either. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Like, on the one hand, it makes a ton of sense and just fucking do it. Like, most Bethesda content was already sold on Steam anyway. But um, on the other hand, it's... No, actually, you know what? I don't have a problem with this one. I was going to say something (laughs) about consolidation of these uh, these digital storefronts and Steam being the the hegemon that it is. Uh... Yeah, just is kind of smacks of monopoly. But eh, honestly, there Bethesda is so small <laughs> as a launcher like that. Like it just doesn't really matter. Oh yeah, I I have no thought on whether or not Bethesda, you know, does or doesn't need their own storefront. I yes, any any independent publisher having their own storefront that's not third party. Again, it it is expensive. There's reasons to do it, but it is very expensive. So uh, that's that's not something I have particular thoughts on again for me the curiosity here was hey is the timing with steam deck gonna play into this 
And maybe not. Maybe that's completely coincidence and irrelevant. But I'd, I'd be interested to see if Bethesda now says, hey, we're, again, we're Steam Deck compatible. And Valve, you know, totes that around with uh, assuming they do advertising at some point. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess it doesn't really, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, it kind of feels like low-hanging fruit. Steam Deck looks like a really capable device on its own. Uh, if it can't run Skyrim, I mean, come on, what are you even doing? Why are you wasting your time? But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure that's that's been a conversation. Indeed. Okay, so uh, one more headline I have, um, and this is something I know absolutely positively nothing about. Maybe you will. You used to be the master of this domain, Zach. Uh-huh. Um, PlayStation has announced the uh, PlayStation VR 2. They are, they're creating a new version. I know nothing about it. Do you know anything about it? <laughs> Uh, well, they have gone big into inside-out tracking. Um, they no longer need the camera uh, module, I believe, for this version. So that's interesting. Um, where a lot of VR technology, at least for PC, is very much consolidating around the Lighthouse model for tracking. Um, PSVR remains a holdout. Well, PSVR and Oculus remain kind of the stalwarts for inside out as a mechanism tracking motion in virtual reality um it's honestly it's a very pretty looking headset i do like the sort of knuckles style controllers that you dip your hand in through the tracking ring and uh that's very cool but um yeah no it's uh it's an interesting looking device as far as like resolution latency and all that stuff i expect it to be in line with what we've got in uh, most of the other mid-level VR headsets, so you know, probably something like 120 FPS max, and uh, you know, down to a couple milliseconds latency. It'll be a, a very comfortable experience, but uh, I don't know what they've changed in the optics, if anything. I don't know if they've added eye tracking to this version, which would be cool. But um, yeah, no, I, I can't say that I know a ton about this specific device, but. I mean, you make it sound like a, a great uh, incremental step forward on a lot of fronts. Um, again, yeah, not using the external trackers. Isn't, isn't even, I mean, Valve right now is focusing on the Steam Deck, but isn't aren't all VR platforms currently trying to move away from Lighthouse tracking and, if possible, to wireless? Well, isn't that the trend, or am I just wrong? Well, the, the Lighthouses as a tracking mechanism are really, really cool. Like, setting up a play space um, and having very accurate, like, laser-guided tracking from an external source is really, like I said, really high fidelity, uh, really low latency, and really, really flexible. Yes, but also very inconvenient for the user who has to set them up. So isn't that kind well, of the, setting the those motivator? Up is, yeah, setting those up. If you're... If you're uh, I'm not saying that it's I hard feel to like do I'm... so, but the average consumer doesn't want to run more wires around their house. Right, right. I feel like I'm I'm gatekeeping when I say it this way, but like if you're serious about VR, <laughs> slightly, then the lighthouse tracking is vastly better technology, and it's a vastly better user experience. Um, the headsets and devices that you use in that lighthouse space, uh, I would like to see those get a lot more wireless attention. Uh, but it is definitely an appealing aspect of things like the oculus quest uh they're very into the inside out bit uh they have there's limitations to that style of tracking in general i'm sure that it's gotten a lot better over time but um 
you are also just kind of it, it's not ever going to be quite to the level of fidelity that you get with a lighthouse system so i just don't really pay much attention to those personally Again, I feel like I, I I don't mean to be, and I feel like I am a little bit like gatekeeping against it. But like, you're not wrong. The inside-out tracking I, is more accessible if well, you're see, not yeah, I, really into VR. I think this so. is another example of where what is technically best may not actually be the most attractive for consumers. And there's sure. that type of technology has gone throughout history, mm-hmm. where the quote-unquote objective best isn't the product that actually won. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's that's definitely always been true. So, um, I mean, it, the success of those inside-out trackers is still a win for VR ecosystems in general because with this, uh, with with lots of things, you see the uh, sort of chicken and egg problem of in order to get the economies of scale and the uh, price points and the quality that you want in the thing, whatever it is, you also need demand behind it to power the investment into it to drive more demand and engagement with the thing. And it's it's a circle. You kind of need both halves to be there for it to be viable. Um, VR saw the same thing. Like in the early days, you had you know cool devices and a neat concept, but no content. And the content has steadily grown over time, but it's very hesitant because the adoption of the devices has not been astronomical right out of the gate and i think it was never going to be but um now with things like psvr uh, i think microsoft is doing a vr headset for the xbox um the uh success of the more casual focused oculus iterations uh quest and others that has a knock-on effect for the rest of that whole media landscape, right? The more people who have these devices, the more incentive content creators have to produce for these devices. And oh, absolutely. Uh, the more content yeah, it's, it's you hard get, to, it, the easier it's hard it is to, to justify sell the making a AAA ridiculously expensive video game when the install base is not, you know, not in the millions for sales. Right. So you know, it's it's incremental, but ultimately good. And like I said, nothing against any of these, uh, uh, any of these, like, well, really any VR device at all. Um, I think the more options that we have for engagement with that space, the more consumers that content creators are going to have access to. So it's, it's a good thing. Here's to hoping. Well, all right, cool. Uh, dear listener, thank you so very much for joining us. Hopefully we'll be back next week with uh, with a full trio to talk about, I don't know, stuff, things. I I do have topics queued up, but we've uh, been starting to go through them. It's been great. Zach, what do you want to talk about next week? Uh, let's see. Good question. Um, We are clearly full of good ideas. Yeah. All right, dear listener, we will leave you in suspense zach thanks again man yeah always fun all right and until next time dear listener don't pirate your qqs because the podcast is free you don't you don't have to pirate it just download it it's fine (laughs) 
dear listener, thank you so very much for joining us. Please always remember that any views expressed on the podcast should be taken in context and are representative solely of the person expressing them. They are not representative of their friends and family, their co-hosts, their co-workers, and certainly not of their employers, past, present, or future. So again, thank you for joining us, and thanks for respecting our individuality. I just got bored. Everybody out.